Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. It's true. It's all the same thing. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life. You know, not just how to write. We do those. But also just how to be a person who's writing. Not always that easy. I was just talking to today's guest before the show started about how you've got to be a little crazy to try to take on this publishing thing. But we do it because we love it. But I want to offer people articles about how to deal with the challenges. And that's what we give you on Author Magazine. You also have video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors uh, across the genres. I have a good – oh, Jen, Jennifer Longo just put hers up. She's a YA author, up and coming, a beautiful book. What I Carry is called, and a beautiful book and fascinating conversation about her journey from being an actress to a playwright to a novelist and stuff about being fought, raising foster children. The book's about a foster child. Really good conversation. It's all there on authormagazine.org, and we're funded by the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from Penda Publications. These people have been since 1955, and you can learn about them at pwa.org. Good good organization. I've been a part of it for years. Um, they have classes here in the Northwest during the year if you live up in the Seattle-ish area. And, uh, and even if you don't, you know, you can tune in virtually to listen to the monthly meetings where they have uh, professionals, writing and publishing professionals come in and talk. And of course, every year they have a great writers conference. They have writers, they have a published authors award, the Nancy Pearl Award. They have the unpublished authors award. And they've already started, people have already started signing up for the conference, which is in September, but don't matter. Doesn't matter. People are already signing up. You can learn about the contest. You can learn about the conference by going to pnwa.org. It's good, good groups. Join it. Join it. It's worth it. Ah, so here's something to announce. It, at the end of February, February 29th, I will be doing a, and then again, on actually on March 7th, I'm going to be doing Fearless Writing online workshop. And then, so that's the 29th, Fearless Writing. And on March 7th, next Saturday, I'm going to be doing Fearless Marketing. That's right. Fearless writing, get unstuck, get in the flow. Deal with the emotional challenges of writing. All writing is inherently fearless. The question is whether you're going to do it on purpose. And fearless marketing, well, this is all about getting you hit. Now, so many writers hate to market. Not my guest today. She doesn't mind. But a lot of writers do. And so fearless marketing is about how to get over fear of marketing and start applying the same creativity that you apply to your writing to your marketing. It can be done. If you're interested in it, go to my website, williamkanauer.com. It's right there on the homepage and you can read more about it. Sign up if you want. Again, this is virtual. So you can have, you can attend this workshop from anywhere in the world. All you need is an iPhone or an iPad or a computer with a built-in camera and you will be able to see and hear and be a part of this conversation. It's a virtual classroom. It's awesome. I've done it before. It's wonderful. Uh, limited participation though. And it's filling up. So if you're interested, sign up now. Okay. Oh, we got a good guest. Fascinating guest today, Christina Adams. Christina is an award-winning writer, journalist, author, and speaker. She and her work have been featured uh, by National Public Radio, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and the LA, Mag LA Times Magazine. Her book, Camel Crazy, 
quest for miracles in the mysterious world of camels explores the scientific and cultural importance of camels and their milk. And it, it, well, we're going to talk about that. You'll see. Her book, A Real Boy, reveals the world of autism and her son's early intervention. Her series, Autism and Beyond, airs on Autism Live at AutismLive.com. An expert on autism and camel milk, she advises families and scientists from many countries. And she's here with us today. Christina, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. I'm so happy to be here today. So I was thinking about you, Christina, in preparation for this show. And if I were to sit down 12-year-old Christina Adams and say, one day you are going to grow up to be an expert on camels and their milk, what would she have said to me? Would she have said, that sounds cool? Would she have said, what? That is not a question I've gotten before. And the adult me still says, what the heck, you know, how did this happen? But the the 12-year-old me still planned to be an archaeologist and was very interested in Egyptology. So Ah. the 12-year-old me might have actually found it uh, kind of shocking, but interesting. See, maybe, maybe in some deep psychic way, Christina, your 12-year-old desire to be a uh, archaeologist was your first inkling of where you were actually headed. What do you think about that? Too woo-woo for you? Or is it just woo-woo Absolutely enough? not, because I feel like camels, you know, I got into it because I had no knowledge I was going to head into a biomedical direction, but that's what things right. like autism and health conditions do. Yeah. So once I pivoted in that direction, then I learned a lot of things. And when I had the idea that camel milk would help my son's autism, it took me on that global journey. And I have felt that I have had the opportunity to be an anthropologist, uh, which is yeah. sort of close to archaeologist, and yeah. um, do that cultural exploration and, and writing and living that story. So uh, it actually, you're, you're very um, insightful to ask that because actually I do feel like that's uh, enabled me to live part of my goals. That's great. That's great. So, but let's back up a little bit because uh, you professionally, you you worked for a time like, was it in the, I'm trying to remember I just read it, but the government you worked in, um, was it the, was it for the, the, the state department? Where did you, did you start professionally in government? I did. I started out at, uh, at that time. What was it? The, the second largest office building in the world, also known as the Pentagon. So right, uh, right. that taught me how to work uh, big systems, you know, and not be yeah. intimidated by paperwork. And, and that, that has been a very useful life skill. What did you do for them? Well, I started out as a lowly clerk typist just to get the foot in the door, but then I worked in uh, congressional liaison. I worked for the office of the chief of staff of the army, but my whole goal was to be a writer. So I became a speech writing person, uh, uh, write their publications. Then I became the editor of the newspaper of the Pentagon. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And public relations. uh, So I I saw a lot of uh, celebrities visiting Washington and wrote about them early on. So um, it was good preparation for, you know, learning how to get close to a story and seeing what's behind the image, behind the public images. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the job, so, but the goal, and this is often the case with writers, often writers know they want to be writers. Not always, not, not, not always. I just interviewed someone who didn't know that, but most of the time they sort of do, but what do you do and how do you get into it and what's the journey you take? But so you knew did, so even would 12 year old Christina have been interested in writing, which did she write stories? Did she keep a journal? What was, how, how far back did it go? 
it went pretty far back. I actually read very early, and I read very um, voraciously, so I oh. could read at four, and I pretty much memorized what? like you know the half of Heidi was a big book for kids back then, and yeah. and so yeah, I was always a reading girl, um, very active though physically, sports and stuff. But yeah. but yeah, in fourth grade, I remember writing. I look back and now I'm like, oh yeah, in fourth grade they said write a short story, but of course I turned it into like a a novel, a novella, and right. and it was like set in Shanghai, China, which I knew nothing wow. about. But you know, I was wow. you know that's what a fourth grader does, like reads something and tries to just like inspire. So maybe that was a sign. <laughs> well, I'm impressed. When I was in fourth grade, which is also when I knew I wanted to be a writer, I didn't even know where sh- that Shang. There was a place named Shanghai, so you were worldly already, <laughs> even at nine. Uh, and right, my, so my little attempt. Yeah. Little, well, sure. You don't. You know what you know. You don't know much. But okay. So you know you want to be a writer, but you didn't say. You know what? I'm going to go to school, and I'm just going to get out of school, and then I'm just going to go up into my little studio apartment and start writing. No. You thought the best place to go is the Pentagon. It seems like an interesting journey towards writing. So how did you have like a super practical kind of bent? Why the Pentagon? Well, it, it's not something I aim for either. I was, I grew, you know, was born in D.C., so I grew up around all those ah, big government okay. edifices, and I was always interested in politics. But then my parents did this back to the land thing, where they moved me to a farm in Appalachia, and so oh. I was very like, oh, 14 years old, going into high school, oh. and I said, I am going to get back to Washington. But in the meantime, of course, I have to live here. So as soon as I got out of college, I did go back to Washington. And uh, just the only writing job I could really get uh, was at the Pentagon, but it turned out to be a great ladder. So I never intended to work there. A roommate had a father who did, and I started out, like I said, lowly. But I wrote so many things, and it really ended up giving me a lot of skills. So eventually, uh, when when was A Real Boy, your memoir, was that was that really a memoir, or was it like part expose, part memoir, a real boy? Well, it's funny because I, you know, had this career in writing um, for the government, and then I did aerospace um, and international PR and stuff for um, an aerospace company, trade shows, video production, and all that. But then I really still wanted to write, so all that time I was writing poetry, and and I thought about a novel. And um, I wrote scripts, but then I had the chance to go to graduate school and get my MFA, which I did in fiction. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, oh, my, my right. whole, yeah. So really, my whole goal was to publish that novel that got an award at school, but then my son got right. diagnosed. So I just kept right. saying, I still want to write. I still want to write. So I turned those um, you know, literary type of skills I'd been honing to writing that memoir, which is a little bit of an expose because – I felt that no one was telling the whole story of what it's like to have a child with yeah. autism and then, yeah. you know, how to how to deal with it emotionally, uh, medically. So I just try to weave everything into a story because if you just put facts and figures in front of somebody, no one cares. No, no, no. It's 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 it is a story and you really you need the story to experience it. And so when and, and so you were just so you when was he diagnosed? It's Jonah. When was he diagnosed? How what you, you had just come out of? Um, he's like four, three. How old was he? He was almost three. I just got in my MFA yeah. and like uh, wow. for writers to know, like you may have heard of Squaw Valley Community of Writers, you know, our preeminent yeah. West Coast. Uh, and sure. so I'd gotten a little scholarship there and I was all ready to go. And, and three weeks before, boom, he's diagnosed. So Right. Um, and you were like, I can't. I, this now is my now this has got my full attention because, you know, uh, my son was diagnosed and we my wife and I, you know, we 
kept doing our thing because we, we didn't know what else to do. But, you know, it, it becomes consuming, you know, and it sounds yes. like it really consumed you. Yeah, it did. I think it's still consuming me. It's something that now my son, he's doing well, but, you know, I see others struggling. I always have, like, you know, I have a life raft, I mean, a life ring. Why not throw it to them if I get the chance? Right. Right. And so I was going to say, when I was reading uh, Camel Crazy, it really read so compellingly. It kind of almost had a a surprising page turner turning aspect to it, which caught me by surprise. Mm-hmm. But happily, I have to admit. And uh, but the fact that you had a background in fiction writing makes perfect sense now, because it read more like a fiction writer's attempt than someone who just needed to tell her story. It had that much polished to it i thought so that came through uh so congratulations thank you anyway. I, I i appreciate that people are saying that and, and my goal with the first book was to make it read fast and have some you know interesting compelling things and people back then used to say oh, i read it in two days i read it in three days i couldn't right. put it down so you know i'm hearing similar things with this book and i'm like a sigh of relief oh good <laughs> yeah well that's great well it should, you know it, i think it should but I, I do think uh the job of the writer, and I, first and foremost, is to entertain. But I mean that in the deepest way, meaning the reader has to want to know what's going to come next, or you, they, you, they aren't going to read it. You know, whether you're writing mysteries or romance or memoir or fiction, doesn't matter. If the reader's not interested, not entertained on some level, then, um, then they aren't going to read. You, have, you won't be able to share what you want to share. You know, no. And, and to try to get people to even pick up a book these days is, you know, 80 uh, percent of the effort. And then to make, you know, to try to get them to, you know, get time to crack it open is another 10 percent. So really, you've only got 10 percent of their effort left to for them to read it. Well, they do. They do. I know because this is all I do. And they and I'll bet they're reading this. And uh, obviously part of the the readership is going to be people with kids on the spectrum. And so talk a little bit about the surprising link that you found is sort of a bio, I guess, biological link between the benefits of camel milk of all things and your son's uh, symptoms around um, autism. Yes. So I never intended to do this as we were talking about. I'd written the first book, a real boy um, about my son and getting him better, but all the journey that that involves And so after that had come out, I was uh, standing at a children's book festival in California, and I saw a camel standing there. And my son was reading a book, and he was, you know, doing his own thing. And I'm standing there by myself, kind of bored, and I get curious, which I have a fatal tendency to do. And so I went over and looked at the camel, and then I saw a guy there with soap and lotion. And I said, well, what are you doing with this milk? And that's what they were doing with it. And I said, what else do you do with this milk? And he said, they give it to premature infants in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic, and it may be close to human breast milk. And that was my light bulb moment because I thought – that may a reboot my son's immune system if it's close to a human breast milk and b be a great dairy substitute for people that can't handle regular milks like him because for him and many people with autism uh, cow milk and other type of milks like that will actually exacerbate or create their autism symptoms like hand flapping toe walking you know zoning out and things like that yeah yeah and so you've so and so so the journey began because Camels, while they are, I guess their population has increased recently as opposed to decreased. Nice. Uh, They don't produce a lot of milk, uh, at least not like cows do. Yeah. 
No, they don't, but they are a great dairy animal in history. And so, of course, at this time, I had no idea that camel milk had been used for centuries by cultures around the world as a healing tool, and it was given for free to the sick, and it still is in many places, but I didn't know that. So that day, I just went home and started researching, and there was nothing in PubMed, which is, you know, like a medical journal database, and except weird articles on, you know, how difficult to make cheese it was out of it because it doesn't coagulate like other milks. And But right. I didn't stop, and I kept researching, and finally, a few months later, I found uh, a couple articles where they had given camel milk to autistic children and food-allergic children in, in Israel, and they got better, so I knew Boom! I'm going to find this milk no matter what, which I, which I was going to do anyway. But that that confirmed I was on the right path medically. Wow! And so, and and so, you, talk about how talk about the 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 response, your son's response to it, and and how fast it was or wasn't. What was that like? Yeah. So even getting the milk was a huge thing, which I do right. describe this whole journey in the book. Because yeah. Yeah. That itself is kind of like, how did you get it? So you couldn't get it in the U.S. then, and I couldn't find camels. I couldn't find anyone, but I eventually um, made a a friend who brought some back from Israel, but they dumped it on the docks at an airport because I didn't have the right permission. And then I I finally uh, got a hold of somebody, a scientist over there, and and I managed to get some uh, frozen Bedouin milk flown in to me. And um, and then I, you know, it took me a while to get enough. I wanted to do a true experiment on him because he's already had a lot of data. So um, I knew how to yeah. kind of do it. Um, so I finally gave it to him at bedtime, four ounces, and he got so changed overnight. The next morning, it was astonishing. Yeah. I just could have never wow. predicted the changes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, what did he think of the changes? Well, he said he didn't say it at the time. Now, of course, he talks about it, but you know, he right. was only nine then. So, yeah. but the next morning when he came down and he ate breakfast, like he said things like, "Mom, you know, you're really great. I love you know you. You're <laughs> so great. I really love yeah. you. Like you do so much for me. You make my medicines. You make my food, and just things like that." And he ate better. His motor skills were better. That means kind of the way he would use his yeah. hands and walk and. He got his own backpack on. He said, who's bringing me to school? Who's picking me up? Uh, There are technical kind of words for all that stuff, but basically he just was so much more able to function properly. And within uh, a few days, he was able to cross the street, look without me having to hang on to him. And then within a few weeks, his skin started clearing up, uh, which is a common thing in autism. They have a lot of medical issues that come with that condition. And it was just astonishing, unbelievable. Yeah. And and so how did the how did the Western medical community that you were involved with respond to it? What was their hmm. reaction? Well, I you know I um, I did everything that I could to make sure that I you know I cha- not change the variables. He was my little n of one to use a science term. Everything was properly uh, done you know for a, right. that little one one off experiment. It was amazing. So then I told his long-term doctor, you know, my son had a lot of testing and all that, and and he was an open-minded guy. But when I told him camel milk, he was like, what? That's not That won't help. And then I said, well, it did. You can see yourself where you were up there at his office. And I said, it's in your – you can see it yourself with your own results. And he goes, if you think camel milk helps autism, you're stupid. And my son got – he was so mad. He said, doctor, you apologized to her. You can't call her stupid. (laughs) See, so but this is this yeah. is this is you know and so my son was diagnosed on the spectrum and 
and you know so I spent a lot of time dealing with people in the professionals and some I liked some I didn't but there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance within that community to thinking outside the box to mm-hmm. um, I think there's ego involved in it I mean it, it really if you don't if you don't know that doctors are just people you will after you try to deal with a kid on the spectrum because oh, yeah. you you're just dealing with human beings who've got beliefs and biases and egos and all the rest. And you have to negotiate that um, as well mm-hmm. as, you know, genius. And anyway, so I could get up on the soapbox about that. I won't do it, but it doesn't surprise me that you heard that from your well-intentioned doctor. Right. But the joke is on him because um, he, you know, now so many people around the world are using it. I'm on uh, two editorial science journal boards. I wrote a medical journal article that's been cited by, you know, 13 researchers probably, and um, and lots of people are using it. Uh, other, you know, doctors are even telling their patients about it. So, wow. I mean, look, I don't, I don't bear any ill will to him, uh, but it, that was not very nice, but he did apologize eventually. So, you know, bygones be bygones. <laughs> well, he said what he believed was true wasn't kind Mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't true but he he probably thought i've got to save her from wrecking her kid or something you know yeah well you know what Uh, people we save ourselves in the autism community we have helping hands but we save ourselves so and it did sound like a crazy camel idea one at the time and but now you know um it's not so crazy but it's still an amazing story so uh, and the animals themselves are like crazy animals they are so incredible biologically and is it from a writing standpoint, I saw out there, there's really no book on camels, um, let alone right. camel milk. I mean, there are smaller kind of niche books on camels, a historical one about certain things, but like there's not really a mainstream book. So I said, there needs to be one on the shelf. Wow. Well, camel's an odd, it's an odd creature. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, who's their closest cousin? Um, cousin, that's like, a good like, one. Um, I, like I guess, a, yeah. Horses, well, they're, but- they're, yeah, they're a cam. I, I, they're not too similar. They're, they did evolve like 40, 40, 45 million years ago. And back then, some of the camel species looked like little horses. Some of them uh-huh. were really big. And but I would say, you know, they're in the the, the family called uh, camelid, uh, the camelid family, camelidae or something is the uh-huh. announcement, but the proper pronunciation. But so they're the same family as llamas, alpacas, right. cunyas, guanacos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's probably their cousins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so all right, and when when and t- when was the first time you rode one? Oh yeah, so I rode one after I started this. After the milk did such an amazing thing in my son, right. I started reaching out to all these cameleers. And so I, I <laughs> yep. called places, I rang them up out of nowhere, and they're like, who is this? Because the camel community, you know, they, they have to be careful who they let in because not everybody understands the value of having animals that are exotic and interesting, right. even though they're not really that exotic in other countries, right. not at all. Um, so I started exploring them, and, and I said, I think it's time for me to ride a camel. So I met one at a, a fair and um and then I went out to um yeah I rode it in I rode it actually in Newport Beach at a fair uh, but then I yeah you have to hit you got to get camels where they are so I've right. ridden them out in the country I've ridden them in you know parking lots so now, there's no place ever, that do you ever ride have you yeah. ridden had you ridden anything before had you ever ridden a horse or a mule or anything Yes, I did ride as a child in Virginia. And so I kept, the first time I actually was around camels, as I write about in the book, they're very intimidating. They look comical, 
but they're yeah. they're really because um, they have these long sex kitten eyelashes and these kooky right. looking humps and little tiny poos and they have naturally smiley faces. But um, they I kept trying to equate them to a horse when I was near them. But once you really start getting around them and you look up close and they their legs have so many parts and their yeah. Those necks are super thick, like a tire, a tractor tire, and the head can swivel around and get you anywhere. And the legs can kick out from all directions. So the I, horse thing, I never think about them like horses anymore. No, so well, I guess I was saying when you when you so when you got up on it, did it feel like riding a horse, or was it just a different sort of just energetic experience, kind of? Well, it's different because first of all. Um, you when you really if you get on one like a lot of people have these loading platforms so you climb up and you just get on the top right. and so the camel doesn't have to get up or down and that decreases the the stress on the camel but when you're out in the desert uh, which I did go out to when you a camel's doing what they call cushing and it's sitting on the ground with its knees folded under it and then you get on and then when it gets up you go, whoa, you tip <laughs> yeah, really right. far forward. Then you right. tip really far back. It's like a fair ride, like a roller right. coaster. Wow. And so the book comes with, the book is a memoir. It's a story. And as I said, it, it does, it moves along. It's very compelling. But you you uh, kindly provided sort of a reference um, uh, section at the back. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the book does, and, you know, I go out and I investigate camels and camel milk and camel lore and camel culture, and I participate in that. You'll visit Indian villages with me. You'll visit the Middle East with, you know, uh, high-level, amazing farms with, you know, nearly 4,000 camels. Come into a camel race with me. Get groped in a camel souk with me. You know, <laughs> no end to it. Get very ill. I right. think I'm going to die in India with me. But um, after people read this, they generally want to know how do I get camel milk, where do I get it, and how do I use it. Right. So I wrote an appendix um, called the User's Guide, and so it has all that information, what health conditions can it help in, like autism, diabetes, um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, gut disorders, food allergies, all kinds of things, uh, and uh, then how much to use and how to kind of thaw it out or, or if it's powder, how to – you know, uh, put it back into liquid, and then right. um, where you can get it globally. And it right. is in America now, super easy. The Amish men are milking camels, and you will meet them ah. in my book. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So talk to me a little bit about Autism and Beyond. This is a – is this a uh, – is it a live uh, kind of talk show? Talk, what, what, what is Autism and Beyond? Well, Autism Live is a wonderful show that uh, is targeted toward uh, the autism community – so parents, uh, people on the spectrum, people involved with, you know, helping people on the spectrum, uh, they all um, can listen to this show or anyone can. It's engaging. So it is a live show, but um, I am on it regularly. So I guess I'm a regular mm. guest, but then I also have my own show on there, which is Autism and Beyond. And so uh, we've recorded some uh, different segments that talk about certain challenges, you know, that you right. have as a parent or you know, that we need to know if you're um, kind of going to help your person with autism thrive the best you can. So right. I kind of give advice, but in a fun, short way, because, you know, our world is very difficult um, as parents because we love our children so much and the world is hard for them. And then we we really need to sometimes take a laugh or we sometimes have to look at things that take a, need a hard look. So that's what yeah. I talk about on, on that show. But Autism Live is great, and I'm, I have a lot of videos on YouTube because of that show. And so if people want to watch those about camel milk or 
camel crazy or just autism in general or just and beyond is the catchphrase because, you know, as parents, sometimes we lose our way. Uh, Everything we do is in service to our children, and sometimes we need to know that our lives have value too. So um, I like to to think that my life is still important to to someone. (laughs) Of course it is. And I will tell you, uh, having raised a kid on the spectrum and a kid not on the spectrum but still quirky just the same, uh, I learned so much from raising them. And uh, I learned a lot about myself, about humanity, about kindness, about perspective. And I also learned that no matter what, your life – and I, I, I've written a lot about being a parent of a kid on the spectrum. And one of my messages is always your life doesn't stop mattering because you have a kid. And, in fact, I think it continues to matter more than anything else because it's still your life. You have to wake up in your skin and go to bed in your skin and look in your mirror and have your thoughts. That doesn't stop just because you have a kid on the spectrum or a kid at all. And I don't think it can stop. And I think it's a great thing about a parent is to let it teach you who you are in a way that it's more about just taking care of them. It's about you, too, just you as a human being and what it means to be human. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, because for many years, I just felt like I don't even matter. All I all I do is about him. But then eventually I woke up and I thought, okay, time is going by. I only have one existence. So um, right. I need to at least realize that I have some value myself. And so, you know, I'm pleased that I've been able to achieve, you know, this book and, and to go out and, and help the cultures because yeah. the cultural, the people that have camels, they, they wanted to be in this book. They want their, their messaging and their lives to matter too. So I'm very pleased to feature so many voices that have been unheard um, in, in the book. That's great. And if people want to meet you, learn about you, talk to you, uh, where's the best place to do it? Is it, is it just ChristinaAdams.com? If I, is that the website? What is the website? It's actually ChristinaAdamsAuthor.com. Okay. And I would love for you guys to visit that. And then, of course, I'm on the usual suspects, Twitter at ChristinaThink and uh, Instagram at ChristinaAdamsAuthor, Facebook ChristinaAdamsAuthor. But um, I would love to hear from people. And I do uh, speak at writing events and uh, book events and, and all that. So um, my, I debuted the book at a camel farm in Texas, but I'm, I go anywhere. It just, whatever shoes you want me to wear from high heels to boots, I'll, I'll do it and I'll, I'll come your way eventually. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, before I let you go, uh, I have one more question for you. And what I'd like you to do is finish this sentence. If writing has taught you anything, Christina, it's taught you what? Hmm, that's a big one. Yeah. Guest has taught me the the value of language. Mm, yeah, that's good. That's a good one. It's one of humanity's greatest inventions, I would say. Language, Christina. Yeah. Thank you so much. Good luck with the world of camels and your son and all the wonderful, awesome stuff you're doing. Thank you, Bill. It's been my great honor to be here today. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Well, yeah, language, it is valuable. Be immaculate in your word. Well, who said that? Be immaculate in your word. The guy who wrote the four agreements. I do remember that. Be immaculate with your word. It's true. Okay, people. Hey, I'm going to have John Michael Cummings back on. I was supposed to have him on about three weeks ago, and we had a technical snafu, so I couldn't have him on. But we're going to have him on again next week. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. Thank you, R.J. You're awesome. The rest of you. Find something you love to do and go do it.